The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in May 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome David Hyde Pierce. Hi, David. Hello, you guys. Let me just recap for our radio audience a little bit of your your bio. You're currently starring on Broadway in the show Curtains as Lieutenant Frank Chiaffi, and we'll get into the whole show in a moment. Other Broadway notable appearances, of course, Monty Python's Spamalot, The Heidi Chronicles, Beyond Therapy, and a lot of regional theater work, a lot of work around the country, including at the Guthrie, the Goodman, the Long Wharf Theaters, where you went to school at Yale, at Williamstown, the New York Shakespeare Festival, Playwrights Horizons, Brooklyn Academy of Music, just to name a few, even a tour of the Soviet Union and Japan. And we'll get into all of that as we talk. Let's uh, talk first about the show you're currently in, Curtains, which is the the most recent, I don't know how to phrase it, Kandra and Ebb musical. It came out after Fred Ebb's death. It's running now at the Al Hirschfeld Theater. Yeah, that's right. It's the most recent. It's one of a, a, a small handful, three or four uh, of, sh- of shows that have yet to be done of uh, Kandra and Ebb's. Um, and Freddie was very much a part of this for a long time. Um, it was, uh, it's an old show. It's been around almost 20 years, I think, the original, uh, original work on it began and uh, has sort of a, uh, it's a, it's a murder mystery musical and uh, sadly and ironically, there is a lot of uh, actual death that's happened along the way because Peter Stone, the great uh, book writer, uh, who was the original book writer in the show, passed away. And then Freddie passed away. Um, but there's something about the piece and about uh, John Kander and also especially about our, our director, Scott Ellis, who really, when he found this, said this is something that needs to be done. And he kept uh, kept it alive uh, through all of that tragedy, and uh, and now we're kind of happy to be able to present it to a, to a Broadway audience. Well, it's kind of a show within a show. It's backstage at a musical that's being tried out in Boston, right. and at the very beginning, without giving anything away about the plot line, the, the star of the show, the female star, gets killed, hmm. and you are brought in as the Boston detective to solve the murder mystery. That's right. I'm a, I'm a Boston police lieutenant, Frank Chaffee. And uh, as you say, they bring me in to solve this backstage murder. What they don't realize when they bring me in is that I also have a secret love of musicals. And as the show progresses, I, I am as interested in uh, fixing the show as I am in finding out who who done it. <laughs> you spoke already of a 20-year history for the show. What is the David Hyde Pierce history with Curtains? When did you get involved? Uh, much more recently. Uh, in 2004, which was the last season of Frasier, uh, Scott Ellis uh, was directing Frasier episodes, and he came to me and said, there's this Candor and Ebb show that's never been done, and there's a part that's right for you. Uh, I'd love you to do it. And I said, that's great. I would love to do a Candor and Ebb show, but unfortunately, I've just committed to this musical version of Spamalot uh, uh, that they're doing. And Scott said, well, I, uh, I'm sure it will be successful. I know it'll be a big hit, but just in case it isn't, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll keep the slot open as long as possible. Well, of course, it turned out Spamalot uh, did end up being fairly successful, and but uh, the loss of Fred Ebb caused curtains to be postponed. So I ended up uh, in 2005 doing workshops while I was doing spam a lot during the day. Did a couple of workshops, one in the uh, spring and then again in the fall, on curtains, and that's where I uh, really got to start working on it and read the script and meet the the principal players. What was your first impression when you when you did read the the book, read the script? Uh, well, I loved it. I uh, it, it was. Uh, even then, very funny, uh, and the character, uh, it's, a, it's a dream of a character because you, uh, 
you get to do everything. Um, of course, at that point, I had no idea in terms of the actual like fancy footwork that I'd have to do because it was just a reading. So uh, you know, there'd be a little bit of music, and it would say "dance" on the page. You know, those are words that you should live in fear of if anyone's looking to do a musical because it turns into a big deal. And now on stage, you look like a song and dance man that you've been doing it forever. That's uh, I'll tell you. The, the credit for that goes to a bunch of people. It goes to. Uh, Kate Kaplan, who is my dance coach in Los Angeles, and I worked with her before Spam a lot, and uh, and again before Curtains, and she really we drilled uh, daily in every kind of uh, dance, ballet, and uh, um, you know Broadway, everything, just to to be prepared for this. Uh, and the other people who deserve credit are the entire original company of Spam a lot, and Casey Nicolau, who's the choreographer, and Darlene Wilson, who was his associate, because they taught me so much. While I was working on that show, I learned so much from them and from the ensemble, and just seeing what it what it meant to dance on Broadway. So that's what laid the groundwork for me to be able to do uh, what our choreographer Rob Ashford has asked me to do in uh, in Curtains. We're going to talk a lot about the other work that you've done leading up to your current project, but you mentioned this special work on dance. Outside of Spamalot, had you done a lot of musicals? Had there been the opportunity for you to dance on stage, whether it's on Broadway or somewhere in summer stock? No, I was never. I had done a few musicals. I, I did uh, half of Good Man Charlie Brown in junior high school because they had to cast everyone, so you could only do half of it. And uh, I did a bunch of Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. I went to a summer camp in New Hampshire where every year they would do a Gilbert and Sullivan. And that gave me a, a I didn't know it at the time, but sort of a window into... Uh, uh, into musicals, but no. Even uh, when I was in college and started acting, um, wasn't focused on musicals. Didn't listen a lot to musicals as a child, and uh, it was only sort of as I was getting through towards the end of Frasier that I looked at. Uh, I'm, I'm a musician. I'm musical. Uh, I started out thinking I was going to be a classical pianist, so I had musical background, and it was the one area that I really hadn't gone into uh, as, as an actor. And so that's when I started. Uh, I worked with, uh, again, another, Calvin Remsberg is my voice coach in Los Angeles and is a great coach who really took me from zero to 60 in terms of having no idea how to sing to, uh, to preparing me to, to do stuff like this. And it really was just a case of you got interested in them. Obviously, you'd been working. You certainly had your run on Frasier, but just decided, I want to see about musicals, and then very quickly landed in succession to major Broadway musicals. It's it's ridiculous. Um, and, and it was a little more gradual than that. I remember I got cast in Boys from Syracuse in L.A. in the Reprise series, which is L.A.'s version of the Encores. And... Uh, uh, that definitely uh, whetted my appetite because I had such a good time doing that. Um, and uh, yeah, and then Spamalot, I I went after Spamalot. Uh, I uh, had my agent call Mike uh, because I'd worked with him before, Mike Nichols, the director, uh, and I was a huge Monty Python fan, and it was a really formative influence in my acting and my sense of comedy uh, growing up. So the idea that they were turning it into a musical, it, it, it's not like I was calling up and saying, hey, I want to play Curly in Oklahoma, having never done a musical. Spamalot was a great introduction for me. And coming into a music, musical, a new musical, for the first time, certainly you'd worked on new plays, you'd done a lot of classical work. The collaborative aspect of a musical often gives an opportunity for the actor to inform the character. And so when you came into the workshops of Curtains... How much did Chaffee become you or you become Chaffee? I think I would say that by the time I did the first workshop, the character was pretty much there on the page. 
uh, I know there have been changes and uh, uh, additions and, and deletions since then, but you'd have to ask Rupert how much of that character that I came to for the first time he had, uh, based on knowing me or knowing my work, because uh, that I don't, I don't know. Um, Peter Stone, who created the character, and and uh, it was that colonel of a of a, a police lieutenant who who loves musical theater. That was always there, um, but I, I guess I don't know the answer to. But but I can say that it wasn't. It didn't suddenly transform once I came on board. It was what I'm doing now. The words I'm speaking are very much like what what I was given. Well, of course, Peter Stone wrote the original book, and that was reworked heavily by Rupert Holmes. How yeah. much of a how much of a rework do you think there is altogether? I think it's huge. I think it's uh-huh. a huge rework. Well, it, I saw an early version of the script. First of all, it took place in in it was a contemporary piece, not a period piece. Uh-huh. Um, the musical that they were doing, instead of being a western of Robin Hood, which we're doing, was a um, Commedia dell'arte musical with Harlequin and all of those characters, and. Uh, uh, there was a, I remember there was a great song for, I, th- I don't know if it was, Fra- I think it was Frank Rich, um, a song about being a critic and, and how important that was. Um, that just a completely different uh, thing. And, and my feeling is it was an even greater accomplishment for Rupert to take something that existed, be able to look at it, look at the characters, which he, he still used the same characters, and... Uh, and then create a completely different story, uh, um, feeling, atmosphere, period. That I know one of his major contributions, aside from all the writing and the, the humor and the interweaving of the mystery, which he's so good at, is simply setting, setting it in 1959, which creates such a wonderful environment for the look of the show, for the feel of the mystery, even for the context of this music. And how about his Frank Chiaffi versus Peter Stone's Frank Chiaffi? Did, did the character that you played change very much, do you think? I think it did. Uh, I think he was. I think he was more pretty much a hard-boiled detective. But I, you know, that's something you'd have to ask Rupert. I, I Rupert is very. Um, first of all, he's brilliant, and he's also very modest and discreet, and really never talks about what was his, what wasn't his, whether it's a lyric or a, or the book or anything. And uh, that's, I guess, as it should be, because uh, it is a collaboration. Was the original Chiaffi a theater buff in, in Peter Stone's version? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think that was uh, that was definitely part of the deal, that he loved the theater, and that's uh, why part of the, right. the the gag that he was there. He talked about the lyrics by, uh, obviously, Fred Ebb, who passed away. Any major reworking of lyrics, or is it pretty much what Ebb had written? Well, the the biggest change is the lyrics that were written after Fred passed. Not so much reworking lyrics, um, but can't like. Uh, there's a song I have, uh, "Lunch Counter Mornings, Coffee Shop Nights," which is where the detective sings about uh, what his daily life is like, and that's the first song John Cantor ever wrote without Fred, where he wrote the music and the lyrics. And uh, then there's this extraordinary song that Jason Daniely sings called "I Miss the Music," which is. Um, it's about uh, Jason plays the uh, composer of this show within the show, and he and his wife, who is the lyricist, are split up. And he's singing about what it's like to try to write a song without your writing partner. Well, of course, John Kander writing that song in the wake of Fred Ebb's death, it has, uh, for anyone who's aware of it, an incredible double meaning. And even if you're not aware of it, it's one of the most beautiful songs you'll ever hear. And the, 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 the text is extraordinary. Since you mentioned that musicals are new, when you talk about a song like like uh, the Coffee Shop song, as an actor, 
what's it like to be able to express yourself in music for really the first time? Because Spamalot, which we'll talk about later, obviously was was about humor. It wasn't character-based singing. And I'm just wondering what that opened up for you. It, it, it's a good question. It calls on a lot of different things. Um, because this is a very well-written piece, the songs come out of the moment. So as an actor who maybe isn't that used to doing musicals, I never had to go over that speed bump of, oh, and now we're singing. Um, but at the same time, it also, this is a much more legit kind of singing uh, than I'm used to, say, in Spamalot, which was much more of a, as you say, comedic kind of thing. And uh, that's where all the, the work with my vocal coach and uh, coaching from David Loud, our, our conductor, and, and, and from Candor comes in because... Th- when a person is really opening up in song, that's what you have to do as a singer, too. And that's uh, that's been a new adventure for me. And it's incredible to be able to learn something like that. And I continue to grow and develop that as we every time we do the show. Let's go back now and talk about how you got into the business and, and the early part of your career. You grew up in upstate New York? Mm-hmm. Yep, Saratoga Springs, upstate and New York. found your way to, found your way, make it sound so easy, but you were at Yale um, and majored in theater, but were not in the drama school? Yeah, I was an undergraduate. I didn't go. Not only didn't go to the drama school, but after I graduated from college, I didn't get into the drama school. I auditioned, and, and they rejected me, um, which w- probably worked out well for both them and for me because uh, things turned out okay. But yeah, I went to Yale uh, originally as a music major. Um, very quickly discovered that my level of musical talent was not sufficient to uh, sustain a career as a piano soloist or anything like that. So. Uh, uh, I but I was doing theater for fun, and, and one of the, the uh, a guy named Bart Toish, who ran the theater department at that time, saw me in a very small part in a senior project of uh, Man for All Seasons, and complimented me on my work. And I thought how bizarre that was that I had two lines and that he would have noticed. And it made me think, well, maybe I should look into this. Um, and a bunch of my friends and roommates and stuff were taking the theater studies classes, so I started signing up for those, and then I just got hooked. Well, we think of you today from your work on Frasier as Niles and also from Spamalot and Afrin Curtin as a comic actor, right. but I know it in Yale, you were in shows like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, St. Joan, Waiting for Godot, mm-hmm. little things like that. A lot of uh, basic classic training as, as an actor, not as a comic actor. Yeah. I... I uh... I love the uh, some of my favorite stuff that I've done is, for example, Chekhov, something like that, where it's neither nor. Um, some of the worst stuff I've done, I was in a in a production of Ham- the first time Kevin Klein did Hamlet, and I played Laertes, and I found all the laughs in Laertes, and only afterwards realized that there probably shouldn't be any <laughs> laughs. But that was just my instinct. I have a I, I love that. Maybe it's just because you actually get to hear the response from the audience. But, yeah, I did a lot of classic stuff, um, Shakespeare in the Park and uh, uh, um, Shaw plays and stuff. It, 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 I, had a, I was really lucky. I had a great, uh, well-rounded uh, sort of theatrical upbringing. But if we read your bio, is it suggests that you got out of Yale, as you say, the drama school said no. But you were on Broadway, it seems, pretty quickly out of school, which is remarkable. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, again, ridiculous. I, I came to New York uh, the fall after I graduated. This was 1981, graduated from school. And um, I was doing odd jobs. Uh, I, I got a, a temp job selling neckties at, neckties at Bloomingdale's for Christmas. And then I started working through a temp agency, and I was working at a law firm in town as a sort of a untrained paralegal. 
And uh, I had done... Oh, here's what, exactly what happened. Uh, Ed Herman, Edward Herman, great friend and wonderful actor who I'd worked with at Williamstown, introduced me, uh, set up an audition, a general audition for Mary Cahoon, who was a fine, fine uh, casting director in New York. And a few months later, she was casting Beyond Therapy on Broadway. So she brought me in, and I walked in and read. He only had a couple of lines uh, for Chris Durang, who was there, and, and uh, John Madden, who directed it. And I got the part. And suddenly, I had gone from selling neckties and filing boring things to being on Broadway. And it was magical, and it was exciting. And I was working with John Lithgow and Diane Wiest and Kate McGregor Stewart and all these people. And uh, the show, uh, uh, Frank Rich in the New York Times hated it. And I got to have that experience of the preview audiences laughing like hyenas, opening night, you know, party at Sardi's, uh, dinner at Sardi's with my mom and dad, and review comes out, and disaster. And the next night, the audience just sitting there like they were at a wake, which it turns out they were, because we closed in two weeks. Mm. But it's extraordinary. I mean, John's already mentioned, you've spoken already, you know, you've done regional theater, you've done, you know, classical work, but you sort of got it backwards in that you debuted on Broadway and then started to do that other work. That must have been an interesting uh, an interesting time. Well, yeah, it was, and especially because I really was not... I, although I had had good training as an undergraduate, I hadn't had the kind of uh, training maybe that I should have to come to New York. I remember the next play I did right after uh, Beyond Therapy, uh, Doug Hughes directed this Edward Bond play called Summer at the Manhattan Theater Club, in which I was awful. I, I knew it when I was on stage. I, it still makes me cringe when I think about it now. And, uh, and the you know, critics hated it and hated me, and it was, that was rough. And so I, I had to go through the process. I didn't know enough as an actor about how you save yourself on stage and how you, when something doesn't feel right, you change it until it does, all that stuff that you learn only through doing it. So I kind of got my training in front of people, which was perhaps not the best idea. Kind of the backwards way of doing it, as Howard suggested. Yeah. Um, do you, in hindsight, think it would have been better some other way, maybe out of town first before coming to New York? Had well, it worked out that way? No. No, because I look at what I've gotten to do and who I've gotten to do it uh, with, and uh, I haven't got a single regret, even including that, because that was a big learning uh, experience doing being bad in front of people. And uh, no, the, the, the plays I got to do uh, in regional theater and uh, the new stuff, Richard Greenberg plays, uh, and uh, Mark O'Donnell and all these, uh, getting to work with Wendy and the Heidi Chronicles and Dan Sullivan as a director, on and on and on. Peter Brook, I got to do The Cherry Orchard with Peter Brook. Well, again, the classical work, as you talk about you had undergraduate training. You worked with Peter Brook. You've done at least two Shakespeare's with Kevin Klein um, for the Shakespeare Festival. I mean, that's quite extraordinary. That's on-the-job training primarily? Yeah. I mean, we. I had – when I, my training undergrad at uh, Yale was basically scene study. It was a variety of scene study classes. But one of the things, Nikos Fakaropoulos, who ran Williamstown, was one of my teachers. And so he brought me up to Williamstown. So there again, you, uh, you're playing small parts – even extra parts uh, or understudying, but you're in a rehearsal room watching Colleen Dewhurst and Maureen Stapleton and on and on and Blythe Danner and all these people, Ed Herman, uh, go about their business. And so you're learning by osmosis. And Peter Brook, I mean, such a revered director. What what was the experience of going into one of his productions? That was very exciting because Peter was one of those people, uh, we'd all read his book, we'd all read The Empty Space, and... Uh, um, it was a, 
a, a neat mixed company. It was Brian Dennehy, Jalko Ivanek, uh, Linda Hunt, um, and a very intense experience, as you would expect from him, uh, that really sort of bonded the company and uh, uh, it was... Uh, and, it, you know, critically very mixed reaction, but we didn't care because it was such an, just the experience of working so intensely with this very intense uh, little British person was uh, was pretty great. And in this period, because you'd already mentioned that you'd worked with Mike Nichols before, you understudied in the very famous Steve Martin, Robin Williams, F. Murray Abraham, Bill Irwin, Waiting for Godot at yes. Lincoln Center. At that point, did you think of yourself as a physical comedian, understudying because you were understudying Bill in that? Correct. I was. I was understudying Bill Irwin, and every time I see him, I remind him that he almost killed me because what he does is not what any other human being in the world does. He had a bit. I remember because you have understudy rehearsals, so you have to do what these guys are doing. He had a bit where they had a rope around his neck. It went down his front and between his legs and across the stage, and they yanked it, and he went up in the air and did a flip and landed on his back. And so we were in understudy rehearsals, and I just did it because I thought, well, he's doing it. i got to do it. Oh, my God. And oh, Tony Walton had this beautiful <laughs> desert set, but it had rocks in it, and uh, it wasn't designed for, you know, that kind of landing. So uh, <laughs> fortunately, I never went on. I think the adrenaline of performance, I probably would have broken my own neck. So you ne But you never got to perform the part? No. No. What's it like doing that with a show and getting to just watch those people or at least listen to those people on the backstage monitor every night? Well, we I, we watched. Uh, it was me and Dan Butler uh, were uh, uh, two of the understudies. And um, we used to sit up on the grid uh, and watch every night, every night, because you couldn't miss. It was Robin Williams and Steve Martin. You never knew what was going to happen. Um, and But also being in the rehearsal room, being in the room with Mike Nichols, watching him direct these people, or, or not direct if that was the appropriate thing to do in the moment, uh, handling these incredible personalities and yet shaping this piece, that was uh, uh, probably better than any school you could have gone to. It sounds like you've had wonderful on-the-job training all these years. I have. And I, and I have always been either lucky or careful about who I've worked with, because in the end I always felt like you can't control if something's going to be successful. You have no idea what the critics or the audiences will do. The only thing you can control is the experience of working on the piece. And if you're working on material that you believe in with people who you respect and want to uh, um, spend time with, that's in your control, and then it will not have been time wasted. Did you learn primarily by observation, or did you sit backstage <laughs> perhaps and and discuss with these various actors why they did certain things, their technique, that sort of thing? Uh, almost entirely by observation. Uh -huh. Never, never, because I think good acting, there's not a lot of visible technique. In fact, I would say most of the times I've been able to spot people's technique, that's when I've learned what not to do. When it, when it's, when it becomes obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You said something that intrigues me, because you talked about being either lucky you're lucky or careful. Lucky we hear about a lot when we talk to actors about the path of their career, that things were offered to them and they just took the job. They weren't right. planning. Careful suggests that you were more selective than some. Was it a case that you were turning down certain things because they didn't feel right? Or what What was the dynamic for you? I would say uh, in gen the, uh, overall there's a kind of chronological thing, which is when you're younger and starting out, you're lucky because you don't have the option of turning things down. And then later on in your career, when you do have that option, then you can be careful. But there were also times 
And I have a, a great agent, Marilyn Zatmary, who's been with me for 25 years, came up to me that night in Sardis after the opening night of Beyond Therapy and said, I want to represent you. And one of the things I love about Marilyn is she has never pushed me to make commercial choices over artistic choices. And I remember when I chose to do uh, Laertes in Kevin's Hamlet, that was a choice because there was another show that I was offered that was going to Broadway. And But the part wasn't as interesting. And I thought, no, I'd rather do this and have this experience. Uh, and I, I don't regret that at all. Now, of course, we spend our time on this program talking about theater work, but during this period, you're also getting small parts in film and television. At the point at which Frasier came your way, you had, as we look at the resume, you'd done many, many shows, no real long runners. So my question to you is, to go from that to what it ended up being, 11, 11 years, years yeah. playing the same character, how... How did you keep that fresh? We talk about actors in the same role of staying fresh. You had new plots every week, but but how do you how do you keep that alive for that period of time? It's um, what happens is you know when you do a long run of a play, the understanding and depth of the character happens night after night after night after night. When you um, have the good fortune to have a long running character on a television show, the depth happens year after year after year after year. And I think the main thing that I had to get used to in the television show was, especially in the first years, how it would change from one week you'd have this great part and the next week you'd have two lines. And I would be profoundly depressed on the weeks when I had two lines and I didn't know why. And I realized that was something I had to get used to because that's not something you have in the theater. Your part is your part. Once the show opens, it doesn't suddenly become less the next week. Um, and uh, so that was the the main thing to get used to. But also, I was re I was lucky in this that the format, the structure, the writing, and the casting of Frasier was very theatrical. And so how we worked with each other was very much like I was used to. Uh, um, actors who really were there in the moment, really spontaneously dealing with each other, uh, with respect for what was on the page, and uh, um, and writers and actors who understood and respected each other's process. Well, as I understand it, the the role of Niles did not exist until you were cast, and they created that for you. How much input did you have into who Niles became, who Niles was? Not a lot of literal input. Uh -huh. um, the It is true that uh, when they met with me, they had not created the character. They just had the idea that maybe they would have a brother. And they met with me. Well, I can tell you exactly because it was uh, the three guys, uh, David Lee, Peter Casey, and uh, David Angel, who created the show, and Jeff Greenberg, the casting director. Um, we were all in a room, and uh, they said, well, all we know about him is that uh, Niles is a Jungian and Fraser is a Freudian, and that <laughs> Niles went to Yale and Fraser went to Harvard. That's all we've got so far. <laughs> I thought, well, fine. And uh, But then... When they the, after that they we we met they offered me the part I got the script which was the pilot script and the character was fully written, and so in terms of ch input that happened after that initial creation of the character, two things one our great director Jimmy Burroughs, very first episode, uh, in the coffee shop, uh, Kelsey and I were uh, standing at the counter ordering coffee. We went to sit down at the table, and Jimmy stopped me and said, "Before you sit down, take out a handkerchief and wipe off the chair." <laughs> now, that was not in the script, not anywhere. It wasn't my idea, and uh, uh, although I did it really well. But um, that's where that came from. 
But then I will say this. I think that not just me, all the care, all the actors, rather, what we contributed was the instinctive, the instinctive sense of playing the opposite of what's on the page. So that if they had written uh, uh, two brothers who were always in competition, Kelsey and I both knew that also these guys had to love each other. And I think that kind of three-dimensionalness etude um, is what allowed the characters to develop and grow believably for such a long time. During this period, TV actors always talk about what they did on their hiatuses. So were you able to do theater during this 11-year stretch? And what did you, what did you get to do? I, um, uh, right before Frasier, I did uh, It's Only a Play, the Terrence McNally play, uh, with unbelievable cast. It was Eileen Brennan, Charles Nelson Riley, Jelko, Dana Ivey, um, Paul Benedict. Gosh, who else was it? It was ridiculous. At its center theater group. It was center theater group, yeah. yeah. And, uh, uh, and then uh, once Frasier started, I pretty much tried to do movies because I hadn't done any movies. So that's what I mainly did in between. And then uh, in 2001... I had uh, the ultimate experience, which was I got to do uh, it's, uh, six dance lessons in six weeks, which was a two-person play. With, <laughs> we need Sorry. to say, with whom? It was a two-person play, uh, me and Uta Hagen. And uh, that was... Talk about acting class. Yeah, it was. I mean, part of the challenge was uh, I knew it couldn't be an acting class, even though I knew I was going to learn a lot. I knew we couldn't have a teacher-student relationship because it had to be a even-handed play. Because in point of fact, in many ways, you were the teacher in the play. In the play, that's right. I was a ballroom dancing instructor, and she played a, a widow who had hired me to come to her apartment and give her lessons. Um, but that was extraordinary, and that I, I can, I can um, palpably recognize the change in my acting after working with her on that play. Why? What, what, what happened? It had to do with what happens in the moment between the two actors and it was the first time that that i realized we weren't playing beats we weren't playing moments of the show the 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 play started she opened the apartment door i walked in and then we just went and then somehow two and a half hours later whatever it was we were done there was never a sense of this is a play there was no, it was always so spontaneous between us and yet what i realized with with ms hagen was she was everything all at once. Um, she was extremely theatrical. She was not at all what you would expect from her books in terms of... You'd, you'd sort of expect her to be an actor, sort of a Marlon Brando type, very close to the bone. No, she was flamboyant, and her gestures were almost Victorian. She came from the era of the Lunts, you know, and that tradition. But it was all so grounded. She didn't change things in order to change them. It's not like suddenly she'd be in a different part of the stage. Far from it, it was very important to her to keep the fundamental shape of things the same because that gave her the freedom to let things be spontaneous and in that show you had the structure of the dances which had to which you still had to meet those marks that's right that's right it had a built-in kind of a choreography literally Hmm. Now, you mentioned before how you got involved with Mike Nichols and Monty Python Spamalot, which, of course, uh, is still running on Broadway, and you created the role of Sir, Brave Sir Robin, right. most qualified as the Brave yes. Sir yes. Robin. He said you were a big fan of Monty Python. Uh, hmm. Tell us a little bit more about Sir Robin and how you, how you came to find the character. Well, uh, the, the first time uh, we did a reading of that uh, show, M Mike brought us in. We were all in uh, Bob Boyette's office in New York. 
and it was uh, almost the original company. It was Hank and me. Um, Hank Azaria. Sorry, Hank Azaria. Yes, uh, Tim Curry played the king. And I think I think Audra McDonald was the Lady of the Lake at the really? time. Um, and it was a much uh, different part then. We uh, we sat around, but what I remember most is I was playing not only Brave Sir Robin, but all of the parts that Eric Idle had played in the movie. Mm. And Eric Idle was sitting next to me. Mm. <laughs> and I thought, well, this is an exercise in futility. Why, why don't we just have him do it? That's when we found out that it, it worked on its own. That it wasn't just those guys. It was they had written something so good that the scenes had an integrity that would allow other actors to do them, and not just to do them, do impressions of them. That was uh, then, and, and what we did, I think all of us looked very carefully at the movie over and over and over again, not to copy it, but to understand, as Mike said, why, not to reinvent the wheel. Because it was a, a company of good actors. They could look at these scenes not with an eye to mimicking, mimicking them, but with an eye to figuring out what is the scene about. What are the characters afterward? Because the great brilliance of the Monty Python troupe is that's how they played these things. What made the stuff so funny is that they played it absolutely for real, and it was only the audience that could see the absurd context in which these things were happening. So working with Eric Idle, sitting next to you, you're, you're, you're reading the, the role. During the basic um, gelling of the show, the show coming together, how much involvement did he have? How much did you converse about the character and... Uh, well, he and Mike were very open to our uh-huh. questions and uh-huh. suggestions and things like that, but Eric was extremely involved. He was uh-huh. in the room every day. He wrote and rewrote, and there was a huge rewrite of the an entire first act that completely changed the show and then led to the whole thing about uh, um, the idea of having to do a show, uh, uh, having to uh, go to Broadway developed in the course of rehearsal that was not part of the original concept it was not part of the movie either of course no and 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 part of the challenge that they met so beautifully was how do you turn this into a broadway musical fulfill the needs of a broadway musical but not compromise the sort of anarchical spirit of of uh, monty python for guys our age david long before Spamalot was in anybody's mind, we were reciting Monty Python routines <laughs> to each other if we were fans and we all knew them. You commented that you watched the movie as you were preparing for the show not to imitate people, but just to get the understanding of the material. But there's a phenomenon with Spamalot, at least early on in its run, where people were applauding and cheering the start of scenes because of recognition and then there were other people who didn't know the material so well who then were responding to it. I'm wondering what it was like to play that because, on the one hand, the material was in many ways new for the stage, yet the enormous expectation and recognition of that material. Well, I think we were uh, probably concerned about the expectation because um, people had very, the people who knew, it was a fairly sizable group who knew Monty Python and, and uh, had their own uh, expectations. But what was great about the actual performing was it you had essentially nonstop laughter because you had the people who knew the material cold who laughed before anything happened because they knew it was going to happen. Recognizing an old friend. That's right. Or, or a killer rabbit for that matter. Or a killer, frequently a killer rabbit. And then you had the people who didn't know the material who were laughing because they were completely taken by surprise that everything, by everything that happened. So they kept feeding on each other these different segments of the audience, and uh, not literally, of course, they didn't actually eat each other, but I mean uh, feeding you know, on each other's laughter. And uh, so it w- it's part of what made that such a kind of effervescent experience for the audience. I'm curious about one last thing, David, which is as we look over all of the work that you've done, 
The number of times we see for film and television where you're accredited simply for voice. And I'm curious about what it takes to act solely in voice because you've been voicing either characters played by other people and your voice is dubbed in and you've done certainly cartoon work. Is is there a different task there than when you get to do it with your full body? Uh, ironically, I think the task is very similar to the task of performing in a musical because you use your voice, I have come to learn, uh, in a musical in a much more complete way. Um, you use all the dimensions of your voice when you're expressing yourself in music. And similarly, when you're expressing yourself uh, in a way where you can't be seen and you have to use the voice to uh, um, convey m more emotion than you might be able to... I built my career on the difference between what my face is doing and what I'm saying. So when that's taken away from you, or when, as in musicals, uh, the expression is much more direct and more sort of uh, pure, that you're singing what you're feeling, um, that calls on a whole lot more resources. And when you're doing animated work, for example, uh, it's basically your imagination and your voice linked together to create these characters. And it's very freeing because you can, of course, be things that you visually could never be cast as, like bugs and, you know football players, I guess. I want to just uh, change from, from theater to a personal interest of your own. We don't mm -hmm. usually get into, into personal things, but you've been very involved with the Alzheimer's Association because of personal involvement in your family. Right. Can we just, before, before we wrap up, talk a little bit about that and about your involvement? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. The, the, um, you know, we're, uh, My family was touched. My grandfather uh, and my dad both had Alzheimer's, which was uh, a rough personal thing, but... Um, it's become such a big national crisis now, and I work with the Alzheimer's Association, which is a, a, a phenomenal organization that, that uh, um, uh, helps not only helps people who are dealing with the disease, but also is a uh, on the forefront of trying to get the federal government to uh, fund research and stuff like that. And, and, and they've started a, a brand new campaign called the Champions Campaign, because uh, sadly we've not reached the point where five million Americans have Alzheimer's, and the numbers are going to skyrocket as our baby boom generations continues to age. So they're trying to enlist uh, what they call five million champions uh, in Americans, one, one for every person with Alzheimer's, just to do something, just to do anything, to make a donation, to call a congressman, uh, because we're, we're, you know, it's, a, it's a terrible disease on a personal level, but it's becoming a catastrophic disease nationally. So uh, they have this new website. It's uh, www.actionalz.org, www.actionalz.org, which is the place people can go to find out how they can join the fight. And uh, boy, I, I recommend anyone who can do it because it's something we're all going to be facing. It's perceived as a disease of the elderly, but that's not necessarily the case. Many people in their 40s, 50s, 60s are, oh, are yeah. stricken with it. We have uh, uh, half a million people right now in America uh, in their 40s, 50s, and 60s with Alzheimer's. And, of course, that poses its own particular problems because these are people in the so-called prime of life, people with young children um, who are dealing with issues of how, how will their family survive uh, as they can no longer function and recognize them. It's a, it's a terrible disease across the boards. Well, I wanted to be sure we got to that, that subject. So, David, as we wrap up Downstage Center, thank you so much for being with us today. It was my pleasure. Thanks, you too. Thanks, David. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online 
on demand for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theater Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcasts of Downstage Center, Help us in our efforts to share the best in theater with listeners everywhere by writing a review for iTunes or for your favorite podcast directory. Thanks so much.